And uh, consequently, all of us, to some degree, uh, walk around in a state of dis-ease, insecurity, uh, and, uh, and in response to our dis-ease and insecurity, we often choose for our, our, our method of healing, our method of relief, uh, choose um, means that uh, actually increase our insecurity and um, dis-ease. So the purpose of, to me, the purpose, one of the purposes of meditation is to, uh, to understand more deeply how, how we became the imagined person that we did and how to recover the person that we are in truth, in the present, the living experience of yourself. So it's always a joy to, to point out the good news that who you are is not who you imagine yourself to be. And in fact, if you really feel yourself right here, right now, even if you're uncomfortable, and if you feel yourself here and you don't look back and you don't look ahead, you don't look back into the past, you don't look ahead into the future. These are just ideas anyway. And you really just locate yourself here, experience the felt sense of your living presence. You will not find anything, anything, in the immediate and unfolding present. You will not find anything that is insufficient, not good enough, comparable to anyone else, that makes you better than anyone else, or makes you worse than anyone else, or even equal to anyone else, you will find a natural, a natural peace, a natural balance, a natural openness, which ultimately translates, if we get used to it, to an open-heartedness. And you will, um, you'll reclaim, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, you'll reclaim your heritage if you stay here. He says, you who are the richest person on earth. I don't think he means that compared to anyone else, but he says you're rich. Not financially necessarily, especially these days. You are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living. He says, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. So that's what we'll be doing today. We'll be basically reclaiming our heritage. We will talk for these, it's a very short period of time. Some of you, this may seem like a long time, but it's a short time to be able to speak about how we, how the house of ego has been built. I gave you the very shorthand version just now, but we will talk about it as it's described in some way. Uh, well, it's not actually described exactly this way, but the, way, the template that I will use today is the, uh, is the 
um, the teaching on the elements of our experience that we pay attention to in order to awaken. And you can see if you, pay atten if, if you bring attention to these areas that, um, that are highlighted in the teachings, in the teaching called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, if you bring attention to each one of those, you will see moment by moment how the house of ego is built. I, were any of you attracted to the title? So I'm curious, before I say too much about it, I've already, I've already um, maybe said too much, but I'm wondering what you think of, before we start, what you think of when you think of the house that Ego built. What is that? Anybody willing to say, please? Uh, I think from the earliest times in infancy, we begin to get trained about good, bad, right, wrong, better, worse. We start comparing, evaluating, and judging things. So the measuring, the measuring mind starts very young. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And we apply that to ourselves, to, our, to the other people in our lives. Yes. On and on and on. Yes. Beautiful. Anyone else? What's it, what do you think of? Please. It keeps out the rain and the wind, but also the sunlight. The house that ego built keeps out the rain and the wind, so it's a, it's a, helps protect us, but it also keeps out the sunlight. Well, that's a nice, nice metaphor. Thank you. I was put in mind of like castles in the air, a place to escape to. Castles in the air, places to escape to. That's the house that ego built. Beautiful. Please in the back. Unseen but carefully constructed process. process of pushing away the things that are uncomfortable and grasping on the things that are pleasurable. Okay, you coming up and helping me lead the <laughs> class. Thank you. That was beautiful. Please. Um, I used to think I had to fix the house up before I could accept it. Um, mm, used that, to think you had to fix the house up before you could accept it. And, and now I, I realize I can, it's just okay, however it is each day, practicing that. Pra but now you're practicing it's okay, however it is each day. Beautiful, beautiful. Any other house builders? Well, I, I came for that, the first word of it, the loving the house that yes. Yes. Yeah. So you came for loving the house that ego built, that, and that is the that is the heart of putting attention on this. If we really understood the building blocks, as he said, this carefully constructed uh, Sakaya Ditti personality view, we can only ultimately regard it with mercy, compassion, loving kindness. And it's only our misunderstanding of how the house is built that uh, leads us uh, astray, endlessly astray, in, in, uh, in escapism, in criticism, and all the ways that we don't love the house that ego built. So thank you for 
highlighting the, the real heart of what we're doing here is we're learning to open our hearts toward ourselves and toward others because, you know, we all walk around with a similar smell, you know, all full of ourselves in one form or another. And we often are repulsed by that, but this hopefully will allow you both to, to show uh, kindness to yourself and your own little ego trips and, and everyone else as well. Just think of the most, uh, the most inflated person that you know, the most person that seems the most full of themselves and, or just in, they tend to just inject themselves into every, just take over every conversation. They tend to, you know anyone like that? How do you usually react? Can you imagine can you imagine regarding that person with, with mercy, kindness? I don't mean pity, but the only way mercy and kindness can flow is if you see that you have that too, <laughs> some version of that. So, anyone else, what brought you today to this particular day? The house that you can please. So wherever you go, there you are, but our, but our mind makes us think that it's somewhere else. Yeah. And that our busy mind tends to feel, create the feeling of separation, yes. So you came to bridge the gap, huh? And we somehow think our mind can create safety in our lives where we can control our lives. But we really have to live in surrender and the present moment. Mm, beautiful. We think we can think our way to safety and you know what Helen Keller said uh, security is is superstition <laughs> I, ha I have the quote but I don't want to butcher it so I won't say more <laughs> so any last comments please You think you have to use yes, the I the house that like ego built. That's my mechanism for uh -huh. getting through my work and my day, and I know that that's not me. And I'm here so I can remember more clearly that that isn't me. That's not me. It's here to remember. Yeah, beautiful. Well, it's not you, but it's it's it can't define you, but it's it's an it's an aspect of your stream of consciousness an aspect of your mind. So we, we try to, we don't, in our practice, we don't, one moment, we don't try to delete whatever it is that, that we've done before, or what our mind does. We, we try to make our, we try to recognize ourselves as big enough to hold that to, even all of our acts, all of our, all of our posturing, all of our presentation. And, oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, egos like this. And to be able to laugh at it. Please. Um, I think most of your, there's a dichotomy in the ego. There is the overcompensation of great, wonderful, and then there is the part where we're good enough. Um, so, right. so dichotomy. Yeah, just a dichotomy, just piecing it together. And there's two sides of the coin, there's one coming. 
Yes, there's the inflation, deflation, exaggeration, uh, not enough, and somehow we want to bring that together. And the, the beautiful news of practice is you bring that comes together in any moment that you're simply present. Like, how can you define yourself right now? What's that? Confused. Right this moment? Uh-huh. How about if you, if you, what we're trying to do in our practice is we're trying to step out of the ideas of ego or step out of the ideas of ourselves and feel ourselves directly. So when you feel yourself sitting here right now and you're not thinking about ego or anything, you're not looking back and you're not looking ahead, what's your experience just sitting here? What's that? Some sadness. Okay. So, now, so what we do in our practice is we let that sadness be felt. We don't try to do anything about it or undo it. We don't create a new ego that's going to get through sadness. We just feel sad. And so we let that happen. Sometimes it'll feel, you'll start to feel a little water flow. And we just let ourselves, as one of my Burmese teachers used to say, if we feel the impulse to cry, we cry our eyes out. And then it passes. See, even sadness can't define you, but it's one of those, those weather experiences that we have. It has causes, and, and those causes, um, when they're seen, when that experience is, is taken in, it, it shows itself and then it passes. How are you feeling now? I'm just curious. Better. Better. So sad was not good and... Uh-huh. Okay. Great. Anyway, thank you for putting out that part about the dichotomy. That's, that's really, there's no rest in that, is there? That measuring mind. I'm great. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm great. I'm better than everyone. I'm not good enough. <laughs> who, are they talk, who are we talking about anyway? It's like none of that is, we can't find any of that here, really, in, in real time. It's all imaginary. All of it. All those notions. And there's no evidence for it when we're truly here and now. Nevertheless, we have all been very deeply and well trained in building that edifice of comparing and evaluating. Um, we've all uh, been well trained in building an artificial version of ourselves, building a, a sense of ourselves that uh, increasingly becomes un, um, insecure, unsecurable. Why is that? Why has it become more and more, why do we feel more and more insecure? You think getting older, you'd be happy, get happier in your own skin. And what is it that keeps building a sense of insecurity? First of all, we have to acknowledge that we're all really insecure. How do you feel when I say that? Do you know what I mean by that? What's what's insecure? Insecurity. <laughs> 
Well, I'd like to, we, we can start from the beginning, and since this is a day of meditation as well, we'll start with the, the, the deepest source of our identity. The, the, in all wisdom traditions that, that study the nature of mind, it's understood that the deepest source of identity, or what we call identification, is with what? What's our deepest sense of identity? Body. Body. So where did the Buddha start his teaching? His teaching, you could say, is all about seeing through the house that ego built. Dispelling illusion. Coming to, uh, waking up out of ignorance. Where did he start his teaching? When he expounded in a, a famous sutta, sutta meaning discourse, called the Satipatthana Sutta. He said, uh, for those who are interested, who want to experience the uh, abandoning of the causes of suffering, the fruit of the path, nirvana, what is the one thing, most important thing, that one what, that one can pay attention to. He called it mindfulness directed to the body. He said there's one thing, oh monks, and you're all monks for the day, nuns, monks, if practiced diligently, carefully, that leads to the sure heart's release is mindfulness directed to the body. Now why did he say that? Why would we start, why is the first foundation of mindful attention, the first focus of our mindfulness, um, the body? Anybody want to throw their, throw their, take a risk and say what you think that's about? Please. Oh, please. Thank you, Susan. (laughs) Yay. Um, At least for me, I think it's the, the perpetually transient nature of the body when I pay close attention to it. The perpetual transient nature of our body when you pay attention to it. So one of the main reasons is so that we can realize, and we can, I'll put it in these terms, that uh, at our body, because it is transient, because it is impermanent and ever-changing, cannot be considered a reliable refuge or a reliable way of defining ourselves. If you define yourself based on your body, is that not a recipe for insecurity? What happens when it doesn't behave the way you want it to? What happens when it ages? What happens when it, uh, when it gets sick? Uh, what happens when it is, is dying? And what happens when it's dead? Who are you then? So, that's all quite obvious yet. In spite of this, our strongest identification is with our body. So this is a a deep source of insecurity. Now what happens when we actually open to or enter the stream of that changing nature of our body, when we actually feel it moment to moment with mindful attention? That identification process, that link 
that says, this is me, this is mine, moment by moment gets loosened. It doesn't mean that we don't depend on, for a great degree, this, in fact, we can't have, we couldn't practice mindfulness without this, what the Buddha called this fathom-long body. But we use the body to begin that gentle process of letting go. Because in every moment that you pay attention, a moment of paying attention is a moment. It's not so much what's present in a moment of paying attention. It's what's absent in a moment of paying attention. What's absent in a moment of paying attention? Thinking. What's that? Thinking. Well, thinking's one. But what's, what's really at the heart, what the Buddhist talked about as the heart of what is absent at a moment of of what he called sati sampajanya, or mindfulness and clear comprehension. Three things are absent in a moment of mindfulness. I, me, and mine. That too. But what I'm pointing to right now, that's actually, that's true. Well, this is all basically the same thing. What's absent in any moment of mindfulness are what the Buddha described as the three root causes of suffering. What are the three root causes of suffering? Grasping, aversion, that careful, that careful identity that we construct, that careful moving away from the pleasant, grasping them. Moving away from the unpleasant, grasping the pleasant. Delusion or confusion. Any moment of mindfulness, free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. Now, why would this a moment free of greed, hatred, and delusion, what would this have to do with, with dismantling the house that ego built? That is our ego. Well, it, it, it's the building blocks of our ego. It is, the bil- it, it is, it is these three, three uh, what are called mental factors, or three what are called unwholesome mental factors. It is these three things that when they um, go unnoticed and when they, are, when they are conditioned, they lead us into that virtual world of the insecure one. They lead us into that s- state of, uh, I'm somebody and uh, I'm, I'm now, I'm a wave on the ocean, but somehow I've gotten separated from the ocean. We, they lead us on this path of searching for something that's already here. Because what happens in a moment when there is grasping? I know where I'm jumping the gun. We're, we're leaping ahead. We haven't even sat yet. But you'll, maybe you'll understand why, why you're doing this. In the moment of, of, in every moment of a sensation and as well any other experience that we have, Every experience, um, accompanying every experience, is a is a um, a feeling, is some kind of feeling is created with every single sense experience we have, and it turns out that when those feelings are pleasant, when those feelings are pleasant, grasping quickly follows. When they're unpleasant, aversion quickly follows. And when they're neither pleasant or unpleasant, what happens? 
Delusion follows. We space out. And what happens when we space out? What happens often in that world of spacing out? It's then that we tend to start to trip out on the imaginary version of ourselves. When we're lost in thought, who's the central character? <laughs> Me, moi. But who's the central character in when, when that moment of pleasant is followed by grasping? What, what happens next with that? What happens with... Okay, I'm going to try to demonstrate this. I'm experiencing this rapturous feeling in my body. We're starting with the body. It produces a pleasant feeling. And that's quickly followed by, I like this. And then liking is usually followed by, I want more of this. And wanting more of it creates a little tension. And that little tension is then followed by, how can I keep this? And, and that, how do I keep this, creates a little more tension. Because now I'm, al I'm also in a state of fear that I might lose it, and I'm really worried about how I can, and I'm really thinking about how I can maintain it. And that tension keeps building, and we actually, it builds, you can actually feel it physically when we're in a state of liking and wanting. Any of you? I call it the state of suspended happiness. <laughs> I'm now hostage to whether or not I can either continue or have more of what, I, what it is I want to have happen. And it happens just like that. T tasting the, I had my mother's in town. And uh, as you do when your mother's in town, you sometimes go out to dinner and I had apple crisp. And it produced this incredible, pleasant taste in the tongue. And almost after the first bite, the helicopter was in, <laughs> was in motion. Didn't even finish chewing and swallowing. It was, it was right into that state of searching. Completely in the tunnel visioned sense that I can't be happy until I get the next bite. I know none of you have ever had that experience before. <laughs> So that little tunnel vision creates in our organism a state of tension. And that tension is then has to release some way. And then even with greed, it's followed by the dream, the strategy. How am I going to keep it going? How am I, how am I going to get back to that restaurant next week and have to go there again? They have the best this and the best. And pretty soon I'm living in the, the, the house that ego builds is thinking of myself as having been, come from the past, passing through the present, on my way to the future, all that's made up. All there is is now. All there is is a moment of taste sensation that turned into this whole house that ego built, this whole drama. And the same with, with aversion, you know, something that's unpleasant. <coughs> unpleasant taste. Or the meal comes and it's the, the little bowl of pasta, they didn't give enough pasta. 
produces an unpleasant feeling. And that aversion then kind of spirals into, I won't come back to this place again. You know, some of that's wisdom. <laughs> but all of this, in each one of these little internal dramas, we're building ourselves the one who's going through it all. And it becomes all about me. So you might even notice, as you sit here so far, how have you turned this morning of practice into, it's all about me. So all this starts with in the world of, of sensation and how easily just bare sensations can, or bare sense experience can then proliferate into a, a whole internal drama where the present becomes something that uh, we have to get away from in order to get on to the next experience. And it's in that process that we, um, that we instead of increasing our sense of well-being and a sense of being home, we increase the insecurity. Because what happens when my well-being is dependent on how things turn out? My identity depends on whether I have success or failure, whether I have praise as opposed to blame, or fame as opposed to shame, pleasure as opposed to pain. What does that do to the sense of identity? Does that increase the insecurity or decrease it? So all of us are trained to go out of ourselves in search, to, go, to lose a sense of, of home in the present moment. So not only is our mindfulness directed to the body, wonderful for seeing the, this process of how insecurity is built, how the house of ego is built. Not only is it, is it useful for seeing the impermanence and unreliability of our body as a source of identity, but it is also because it is always present. It is also the anchor that helps us, um, helps us reorient ourselves to and find passion in the life of the present moment as opposed to uh, the obsession with what's next. Trying to get somewhere, become someone, be other than who we are. So let's just start by, in, at least in this form, reclaiming our heritage, coming back to our bodies. And you may need to refresh your posture, just loosen up a little bit. After this sitting, I'll read you a, a little list of statistics about our body that will also perhaps have some impact in your level of identification with your body. You'll, you might find it interesting. Everybody on your mark? <laughs>
So clearly the first thing we realize as we close our eyes softly and orient ourselves to the experience of the sitting body that the felt sense of sitting, the felt sense of ourselves as we sit is very different than the idea of our body. The idea of our body is often associated with some kind of image, some kind of comparison. But instead, in our practice, we simply feel that world of sensation. We feel the gentle uprightness of our posture. We may find that it's useful to shift from side to side or front to back until you find that center point where sitting is most effortless. And then we try to receive the sensations that are created by the contact of our rear on the cushion or the chair. We feel that support of the earth element, just a sense of hardness, pressure, heaviness. And we try to receive intimately the points of sensation that we feel as our hands touch whatever they're touching, touching themselves, just the touch of the hands. That point of contact of the lips touching, the eyes touching again. And we feel that field of sensations that gives us the sense of a whole body. Like stars in the sky, just points of feeling, vibration, (coughs) pulsing. And we feel the gentle stillness. And then as another recognition of the selflessness of our body, we sense the way it gently moves and it it moves either rising, either expanding or contracting, moves in gentle ways as it breathes. Without any prompting, the body breathes selflessly. And we just allow the in-breath and the out-breath to be felt. Sense the way the body is breathing. Short breaths, long breaths, rough breaths, smooth breaths. Without any volition or intention to alter the breath, we just let our bodies breathe and see that they do breathe themselves. Not me, not mine, this I am not.
may notice at some point the impulse to try to control or direct the breath. And just notice that as another appearance. And settle back and just let the breath breathe itself. And see if you can, if there's the sense of accompanying the breath with kind attention. Feeling the duration of the in-breath and the out-breath, one breath at a time. And when you realize that you've been lost in your imagination, you may recognize this immediately, that this just happens. It's not personal. No one wandered and no one came back. But appreciate that moment of reawakening. And then it's helpful to use volition or intention to connect again with your body. It helps deepen that anchoring in the present moment, deepen that careful observation of the nature of our body, one moment at a time. This breath and the body, this moment. A simple, Connecting, bringing our mind and body together is an act of love. It's a stepping out of the drama of becoming, needing to be different. Just this breath, just this moment.
Another way that we love the house that ego built is to be especially kind when we realize that we've been wandering in our imagination, building a fantasy of our past, our future, present. That moment that we wake up to where we are and realize that we treat that kindly, gently. No judgment. This is what our mind does. It builds the edifice of self in our imagination. So we just appreciate that we're now recognizing that. And in behalf of staying anchored here, stabilize our sense of presence so that we can actually more easily notice what our mind is creating. In behalf of staying anchored, we come back to our body. So we learn from the unbidden nature of our thoughts, our imagination. We also learn from anchoring our attention back in our body, our breath. Gently, again and again, like putting a puppy back on the paper, we connect again with our breath, our sitting body, just this breath, just this moment.
I know this was a, for some a long sitting, for some a short. Uh, I always like to check in uh, to hear what happened. I always, uh, I always often think of, is it good news or bad news? Um, what did you notice, please? No, I'd love to comment on that, but I'd also like to hear number two. Number two was interesting. Um, I was thinking about where um, projecting in the future, and I was thinking about um, the artist's rendering of the new facility that might present itself here. Well, someone has to set the intention and, and plan a goal, and where you wanna you wanna have a place for the the future, and, and I was just thinking of where that fits into a city. So where you, you, you want to have a goal, like for instance, the new facility for here. And, um, and a lot of, you need to have awareness and, you know, for that to happen. So yeah, all those things. So somewhere, if having something similar just on a personal level must have a place too. So that's yes. a comment. Yes, we all have to have, uh, in order to manifest what we'd like to see happen in our lives, we, we need a uh, heat, need intention and uh, creative, creative uh, expression and, and plans, all that stuff. And uh, how does that fit in with the house that Ego built? Is that right? Well, it's funny that you say that because I wanted to remind everyone that uh, that even though we are we started with mindfulness directed to the body, uh, we also we never in our process of inquiry we don't abandon our conventional understanding. Our conventional point of view is that I'm here and you're there, that I'm here. This is me. This is my body. This is the our conventional point of view. This is, uh, it's very personal, it has a unique configuration, just as your body has a unique configuration. That's our conventional reality, that's ordinary reality. And I have different goals, I have different, I was born into different circumstances. I just, uh, early this morning, someone told me to uh, turn on the TV to watch um, uh, Sunday morning. I don't know if you, any of you are Sunday morning fans, which is this institution on CBS News. But they did an interview with, with uh, Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett, who I actually, uh, who I know personally, his kid, I grew up with his kids and we're friends. But he, one of the first things he said was, uh, I was, um, he says, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of skill, personal skill set that I learned, et cetera, and, and had this and that. But he said a lot of it was luck that I was born into the, the family I was. He says, my sister, my two sisters were absolutely easily as smart as I was, but I was white 
and I was male, and I had more opportunities. And so on one hand, it's pers there's this personal thing, his personal circumstances, but he was also part of a larger context of causes, what we call causes and conditions. And just the same way is that even though this is my body, my body depends on earth, air, fire, water. It's not mine. It's a rent-a-body, as Jack Cornfield puts it. It's a rent-a-body. It, it came together because of the circumstances of, of parents and, and generations and culture, etc. In a certain, from a certain dimension, not personal at all. And even the intention that we talk about that comes into, that came into being to, uh, to enhance Spirit Rock, to make it uh, able to, uh, to support people for generations to come, that intention, it may have come into the heart or mind of a few people, it came into the mind, heart and mind of many people. And from a conventional point of view, I had this thought, I had this intention, then I went about it. But if you really look at, if you really look carefully at how that comes to be, moment to moment, those things completely unbidden, selfless, intention, then followed by action, and you would not find any agent for any of that. But from our conventional point of view, I did this, or, or whoever did that. And we don't want to, we never want to abandon the personal, but we also want to always understand the personal in relationship to the to the, to the um, collective, and also the person in relationship to what we call causes and conditions, karma. Uh, and that karma, in some ways, is very is selfless. So we will, what we're trying to do, and the only place we really do this is in science it's done. In fact, I wanted to share a little statistics about the, dif the difference between the personal and the non-personal. I think this is a good example of it right here. So this, is, this expands beyond just you and just talks about the human species. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. So you think that iron is personal? A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. <laughs> it's very personal. <laughs> Most people think about 20, th blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. Does that sound pretty personal? The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100, 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube the string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times. Sound personal? The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Think there's someone in there planning that? 
Sorry, I'm just going overboard here. Every, squ every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Human <laughs> this, this, one I, this one I can hardly get through. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. <laughs> Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. <laughs> the body makes new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a new head hair every two to five years. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of the, in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to this sentence. <laughs> Radioactive isotope studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So conventionally speaking, my body doing all these things, but in a, in, a more, in a deep, more scientific, or even meditative way that allows us to actually experience this moment to moment, it reveals itself as a completely selfless process, not a reliable anchor for our identity. Not me, not mine, this I am not. This, as I've said before, rent a body. You can't tell your body not to get old, not to get sick, not to die. You can tell it all those things, but it, it does, it operates according to its nature. And it is the same precisely with intentions and then actions. From a conventional point of view, they look very personal. But if you were to break it down moment to moment, how we even get an idea, how we even make a decision. Decisions are made, but nobody who decides. But we'll get into that a little later. Does that speak to your question or no? Oh, and in terms of the, I, I just want to speak on a more, more conventional level about the effect of sitting with other people. You know that, it, on one hand, that does speak to the the, um, the sense of ourselves as separate as being a kind of illusion, as an optical delusion of consciousness. That conventionally speaking, you're sitting in your spot, I'm sitting in my spot. But when we're quiet, when we gather in a group, we begin quite quickly to feel that the sense of ourselves and others, are the boundaries between ourselves and others are quite permeable. And it's really at the one of the central um, teachings of the Buddha is that one can't do this alone. That, that uh, when you try to sit al home alone, even though it's wonderful to have self-reliance and a daily practice and all that, it's so much more potent a, a support to practice with other people. And we feel that directly. And it's another reminder that uh, that's not personal. That is part of the collective. It's part of the, the whole that we don't exist independently apart from each other. And so all of our, our noodling about me and mine, that sense that we are the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean, that creates such a false sense of, of disconnect. And that's why we practice. And our practice is just by that felt sense that you had. That is a way of loving loving that, uh, this, 
this house, loving this house that ego builds and helping that sense of isolation and insecurity melt away into the openness of interdependence and interconnectedness. So hopefully you feel that a little bit and you, you utilize being with each other today as a support. And the reason I say this is central to the Buddha's teachings, he gave a teaching on what are called the three jewels, the three refuges. He didn't, he, and he was very specific. The first refuge, something reliable to use, is the Buddha, which means simply to be awake. Your own intrinsic wakefulness. Now, I can say right now your own intrinsic wakefulness, but when we, when we notice awareness, when that, that being aware, it's not my awareness. It's aware. We all have awareness. If I tell everyone in the room, stop being aware right now. Stop it. You see that awareness is natural. So, it's, so we speak about it as my awareness. It's me. But when we just sense what awareness is, it's, it's not me, it's not mine. It's just aware. Aware is being aware. Does that make sense? So this is the first refuge to get used to being aware, a kind of aware presence. And then to apply it toward our body, toward all the different things we're paying attention to. The second was to, to take refuge or to uh, go to whatever it is that you notice, whatever's true in your experience. You rely on that, on the immediacy of things, on the on how you understand things to be unfolding moment to moment by direct experience. Not your ideas about things, but the, the direct perception of reality. So that those two are interdependent, being aware and, and whatever we're aware of. Two reliable refuges. Why do, why do we do that? Because every moment we do that, as we talked about before, we step out of the imaginary version of life. We step out of that more insecure world of, of our imagined self to noticing what's actually here. And then not only do we notice what's here, we also notice our mind creating whatever we imagine things to be. And there's a difference between acting out of that imagination and noticing it. So, that, so the first one is the Buddha, awake. The second one is the truth of what's happening. That's the Dharma, Buddha Dharma. And the third is the Sangha, community the support of others who are doing the same. And really, the wider view of Sangha is everything is connected with life. The more immediate view is all of us sitting together today. So I know that's a long answer to a short, short comment, but uh, you're right on track. Anyone else? What happened? Please. Um, one, of the, one of the things I noticed was, as we were talking about moments of sadness, and um, what came up for me is, I think you mentioned, you know, don't try to control your breath. And a uh, moment of sadness came up for me as I realized that I could not stop controlling my breath. You couldn't stop controlling. And, uh, even at home, my own practice, I can't really stop controlling my breath. And it's, it, it brought up a moment of sadness because it was almost shocking that... Uh, I, find, I mean, I find that in other places in life, no surprise. Can't, control, can't stop the controlling mind. And, uh, so here what we do, what we do with our practice, and this goes to the heart of the, the purpose of this day long, is to love that impulse to control. Is to, I didn't say don't control it. I said to 
I said some of you will, as some of you will notice the tendency to control, but I didn't say don't. As soon as you say don't, it means it, you'll, be, you'll often be bothered by controlling. And if you're bothered by it, it'll keep tormenting you. And that will just keep building an insecure, impossible to control house of self. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? So instead, in our meditative practice, we, of course, we just allow the body, we, as much as we're able to, we just let the body breathe as it does. But then we also kindly notice that impulse to control. And we, we give it lots of space. In fact, I would even exaggerate it, control it even more. See what the controlling mind is like. Love that. Bring great mercy to that. Because there's, there's an engine that drives that. And of course, we don't want to be doing psychotherapy here, but if you really give your heart to noticing that process, you may discover that the engine is, you're afraid that you'll, you're afraid of being out of control or something. And we tend, that's one of our ways of running from truth is, and it's innocent. It's just we're afraid that we'll, that we'll somehow be annihilated or die if, that we're going to be the first one to stop breathing. When we haven't really lost any, you know, we 99% of the time, the breath is going along fine, but as soon as we start paying attention to it, there's this thing, if I don't pay attention, if I don't hold on to it, I'll stop breathing. So we just, we try to appreciate our fear around that, or whatever it is that you feel. So, I so I'm so happy that you named that, because you're not alone, but try to make space for it. And that's just another expression of loving the house that ego built. How we build ourselves. I'm the controller. Wow, isn't that interesting? Please. Yes, yes, you. In the beautiful pattern. Yes. Yes, a beautiful, creative uh, fountain. But it feels more like contemplation than meditation. And um, so then I try to say, okay, thoughts and bring it back. But I really like what I'm coming up with. <laughs> <laughs> because it feels better. It feels more like I'm getting in touch with yes. a different part. That's one of our capacities to to hear our deeper wisdom and deeper understanding, more creative uh, solutions. That is one of the fruits of being open and being present. However, it's, it's really dependent on what the intention is. So if the intention is to build Spirit Rock, we're not going to, to spend hours and hours trying to solve some other, some other issue about um, knee pain. We're going, to, we're going to put our attention on that task. And so, if you're, so it's very important when you practice to have, if you can, to have clarity of intention of what, what, why you're practicing. So if it is to contemplate, to create the conditions to get solutions to your problems, then just sit there, open up, and then see what bubbles up. But if your intention is to see into the nature of mind, then you don't want to feed or let any kind of uh, internal drama proliferate too much. You don't, 
you don't want to keep thinking about things, you want to just notice the thinking mind as, or the creative mind or the solution mind and see it more as, as the process rather than get involved in the content. So it really is a matter of intention. As one teacher said, Padmasambhava, he said, everything hangs on the tip of motivation. Every, the whole practice hangs on the tip of motivation. What's, what's the engine driving it? That's, that's the, and that was the radical offering of the, of the Buddha when it came to the teachings of karma, of, how, of cause and effect, is that the fruit of any action depends on the motivation, that's, uh, depends on the intention that's driving it. So, and that was different than karma. Before it was, you know, you do this, you do that. There was an understanding of the differences between motivation. Like if I give a gift and I want somebody to like me, different than if I give from a spirit of generosity. Anyway, I think you get the point. Please. Just to build on that, as somebody new to meditation, can you give some suggestions for when you veer from your intention and you feel it happening? Do you mean moment to moment when you veer from your intention? In the meditation, I had the same experience that things came up related to work and um, things happening my life not related to my intention. So when you, yeah, so when you, when work stuff starts, it will, what we experience in our mind, especially when we're just stopping for, when we're not in the, in the frequent habit of stopping and paying attention, what we will be visited by, what, what is, we will be visited by whatever we have practiced, whatever we've been dwelling on. So what, uh, so it's natural that you'll be visited by work stuff. But it, but if you want to keep some kind of clarity of intention, you want to be very gracious about that and just call it work thoughts. Give it a, you may even want to give it a label. Uh, just be accepting that it's come, but then let that be a, like a gong that says, now um, let me just notice that, or let it go, or let it be, or come back to the breath. But gr- just be very kind and gracious. Because the tendency is to go, oh, I'm supposed to be here meditating and I'm thinking about work. I'm doing it. Now, isn't it true, though, that that came completely unbidden, didn't it? Did you ask to have all those thoughts come in? Was there a little agent in there saying, now think about work? No. And this is part of our meditative education, too, to see that thoughts are thinking themselves. That whole house that ego's building in our mind of me, the one who's at work, dealing with that work problem, is all, a, it's just a spontaneous fabrication. There's no one really there. And, that, and our job is to notice that. So, so you can both renounce it in terms of feeding it, but you can also use it as, a, as an insight into the nature of thought. Please. So two, two observations. One was felt uh, like pain in the body. Yeah, I noticed that you were a little uncomfortable. Uh-huh. That, that itself, you know, I don't want to move because that will disturb other people, and you know, I wish I could not have the pain. Anyway, so there was a lot of, yes. you know, that was annoying. Um, the, other, um, the other one is, is kind of feeding on some of the other comments. It's just, I, I, I think it's more of a question. It's, it, I struggle with the ability to, to, uh, to balance uh, the sort of primacy of the pre- present moment and, and awareness and the pragmatic um, primacy of the present moment and the and the, pre- uh, and and the demands of, of needing to make decisions and 
and you. take action and things like that. Well, the most important thing that I, did everyone hear the question, what's the, how do we balance the primacy of the present moment and the fulgence, the fullness of being here and now, and then also having to make decisions and do our lives and plan and remember and strategize all of that. The most important thing that one can realize and the way that we can most love the house that ego builds is to realize that all planning, all strategizing, all remembering, all rehearsing, all reminiscing, all judging, all creative endeavors, all epiphanies, all insights, everything, everything. What's the, what am I about to fill in the blank? Everything happens in the present moment. There is no other moment. There's no other time to do things. There is no future, it has not happened. There is no past, it hasn't happened. So the past is just an idea that comes into the present called memory, regret, guilt, whatever it might be, reminiscing. Plans, worries, expectations, anxieties, all happen in the present. We call them future, throw them out in front of us somewhere. They don't, it doesn't, these places don't actually exist. So the only place we can do anything is here. So the first thing that we learn to do in our practice is to be oriented to right where we are. And know that, and so that we don't necessarily abandon the planning mind. We notice that the planning mind's happening right here. The need to make a decision is happening right here. And the reflection on a particular issue is happening right here. Now what happens when I actually construct and then believe that there's a future or a past? What does that do to my sense of being here? What happens to the present moment when I've mistakenly believed that there's a past and a future? It leaves my body, my sense of presence. I'm left in that state of suspended suspension. My body becomes lifeless. I lose a sense of vitality. I lose a sense of immediacy. I, and then if I lose a sense of vitality and immediacy, I also lose a sense of confidence in faith. And then what happens is, my, as my as I start to feel more and more uncomfortable in the present moment, not to say that it had anything to do with why you felt uncomfortable, it just seems like you're maybe not sitting in the best posture or, or you're used to it, so that's that. But the effect, though, is that our, our, um, our mind then starts generating more worries and thoughts of, about how we're going to uh, get comfortable again. And that actually makes the process of creating and planning, it makes it more difficult. So first and foremost, we find, we get used to the fact that there's only the present. And life is only and always in, in, as Alan Watts called, an eternal now. An unfolding now. And I notice the moment I say those words, there's only now, something in me just relaxes. I can't get anywhere else. I can't be anywhere else because nothing else exists. And yet, 
Oh, I may have a thought of worry. Oh, anxiety. Any of you have any anxieties or worries? <laughs> so if I'm oriented to the present moment, oh, anxiety. Oh, this is, this is a, a little ego house built that's, that's fearful that I won't be happy in the future. Oh, that's what this is like. And then if, I'm, if I learn to be present, I can soothe that, can be loving to that insecurity. But I know, but at least I'm not adding to the idea that uh, my sen- if I'm oriented to right here, are you still with me? Mm-hmm. If I'm oriented to right here, I don't have to um, be under the illusion. I, I know that my, my, um, my well-being can only be found here. And that, so I'm not... I'm not falling under that mistaken view that my happiness depends on how things turn out some other time. Because as long as I'm dependent on how they turn out some other time, then I'm always in that state of of anxiety because I don't know how they're going to turn out. None of us do. So this, again, Helen Keller, uh, security is superstition. And something, she says something to the fact that kids know this, uh, adults don't. Says, you just have to totally immerse yourself in life. Mm-hmm. Playing it safe uh, doesn't work. So yeah, all that happens here. Last one, and then we'll do have a walking period. And have some a little more to say about noticing the ego house during walking. Please. I just had an interesting little experience. I always have difficulty focusing on my breath. And at some point during that, I looked at different parts of my body and realized that I do know that all my stress is held in my, in my chest. Stress <coughs> is held in your chest. And so, and I've known that for a while. But I, I actually sat with the, the stress and listened to the breath come in and out through it. Yes. And then kind of whenever you did feel the stress, which kind of occurs in rhythm with your breath, you just kind of love it away when it, when it comes. But it was a totally different way of listening to my breath that really was, was magnificent. So breathing with your stress. I think just recognizing the part of your body that's, that wants to make itself heard. Ah, recognizing the part of your body that wants to make itself heard. Perfect example, loving the house that ego built. This whole sense of ourselves was built <coughs> was built uh, through causes and conditions to sometimes experience joy, sometimes stress, sometimes. And what do we? What does it really need in order to feel relief? It needs doesn't need to to go running to see how you to see how you can get rid of your stress. It needs to be loved, just like you did, you know, loving it up. Exactly. So the body needs love. These stressful feelings need love. Okay. So the next, uh, our next little phase, just if we were to sit here all day, you'd be gone in, in very short time. So uh, it's, a, it's really good to move. But not only that, it, in our practice of insight meditation, the movement is an equal partner to the sitting. It is an equal opportunity to bring that kind of mindful presence, 
to notice the house that ego builds, to notice the body, notice the moods, notice the whole, all the building blocks of, of our sense of ourselves. And it is especially true in walking, because we do a lot of walking in our lives, it's especially true that a lot of the, the virtual version of ourselves that plays through our mind gets constructed and fed during walking. So for the next 15 minutes, we won't do a long one since we only have the morning together. For the next 15 minutes, I'd like you to walk, to feel your steps, to just feel the, that sensation, move beyond the idea of you, me and mine, just feel the steps, but then to notice and try to be very gentle about notice the way your mind constructs a sense of time, where you're going, where you've been, ver whatever version of yourself is playing in your mind. And every time you notice your mind construct a little story, try to just give it kindness. Just to see, this is what my mind does. And rather than judge yourself and tear your attention back to your steps, just notice the construction, the, the building of the house of self, moment by moment. And then you'll understand how, how we create ourselves moment by moment. And, it, and it'll stop being something you judge. And the other thing to notice is how automatic it is and how unbidden it is. So we'll do that for 15 minutes and come back again and again to the steps. Please. Bradford, Adams, Eric Collison. Okay. So please take care with the transition. Be mindful of your steps. And just have fun with noticing how, how mentally ill you are. <laughs> Will there be a time to... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.